Welcome to Cancer Center Grand Rounds. I'm going to um, first welcome everybody in the room and welcome people that are watching remotely. And I'm going to do this backwards because I always forget the second part. So before I introduce Professor Hornick, I'm going to read his conflict of interest statement, which states that he doesn't have any financial interests. He uh, doesn't intend to discuss any off-label or investigative uses of a product or device. And uh, he's not receiving any d direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Is that right? That's all correct. Good. <laughs> so we're uh, really happy to have him here today. Uh, Professor Hornick is uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, where he's the William Schramm Chair of Communications and Health Policy at the Annenberg School of Communications. And he's been there since 1978. Uh, but before that, he was a uh, Dartmouth undergraduate and uh, graduated with the class of uh, 1968. We've been talking about getting him back here for quite a long time because we have a lot of uh, similarities in our interests. And uh, I wanted to, to come uh, talk to us a little bit and um, uh, kind of uh, communicate a little bit about uh, different ways of measuring exposure to media, which has been a, an important part of both of our careers. Uh, Dr. Hornick is uh, PI of a couple of pretty, pretty big and important projects. He's uh, over the past 10 years, he's been uh, head of a uh, uh, cancer uh, center for Com cancer communications research, which was a big NCI uh, R01 that got awarded to certain centers for uh, program projects around cancer communications, and they've been a very active center in terms of their publications and their training of PhDs around cancer communications for, for about a decade now. But uh, more recently, he and his colleagues received a P50 uh, to conduct tobacco regulatory research. So we're looking forward to seeing him dive into tobacco regulatory research and, and uh, seeing what we can learn from uh, what they learn from their, from their P50 as well. Uh, a while ago, 1998 to 2006, uh, he also evaluated the national anti-drug media campaign. That's the other other thing that I, I know him well for his work because I read the report. And what was interesting about that report was that was a campaign that lasted quite a long time and the government put uh, hundreds of millions of dollars into. Um, and it was up to uh, Professor Hornick to tell the government that uh, not only did uh, the advertisement, camp the anti-drug campaign not work, but there was a boomerang effect. That is, it actually was associated with increased drug use among kids who were exposed to the campaign, which was a tough self to the government at that time because uh, it was kind of the just say no uh, period of uh, government. Uh, and uh, so I have a lot of respect for him for uh, communicating that to the <laughs> people he had to communicate it for. He's uh, been on committees with the Institute of Medicine that have uh, addressed substance use. He's authored over nine books and he has over 100 peer reviewed publications. We're looking forward to what he has to say to us today about uh, assessing behavioral effects of exposure to uh, media content. Welcome, Bob. Just for long, I'm putting my talk, however. No, no, my talk. My talk. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to, I wanted to just do it, you know. <laughs> I probably will anyway, but. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. So I'm really pleased to be back here. Um, I did graduate 45 years ago. 
<laughs> it's been a while. Uh, uh, I have been back once or twice since. So uh, we've done a lot of research um, at the Edinburgh School for Communication at, at Penn, uh, trying to ask questions about uh, what the effects are of exposure to ordinary media content. Uh, and what I'm going to do today is trace a series of studies which have tried to address that issue uh, and uh, talk both about some substantive results and partly talk about methods. How do you study that problem? How do you make an argument that, that media exposure actually matters? Um, so I'll talk about some theory, some methods, and some evidence. Okay. See, I have my own disclosure statement right there. But now that you've made it for me, I don't need to leave that up there. Okay. So what do I mean by media effects? Um, I, by the way, I welcome clarifying questions during the talk, so don't hesitate to raise your hand, and I'll leave a fair amount of time at the end for uh, deeper conversation. So I'm interested in effects that happen on a large scale, so uh, really population-level effects, uh, both um, uh, large-scale in terms of people and large-scale in terms of time. Um, linked to that is the idea that I'm interested in, in uh, projects, uh, programs that occur in, occur in real-world contexts. Uh, ecological validity seems like an important issue in terms of choosing where I tend to do research. Um, and uh, although this is probably less important for those of you who work on uh, in, health, in health areas, um, I do focus on behavior as an outcome and not just cognitions, not just beliefs or, or attitudes. Um, most of my work focuses on mass media. Uh, but sometimes interpersonal communication plays an important role in it, as we'll see. Um, I'm really interested, uh, and this is probably an important distinction with some other research, in the public information environment generally. That is, that mass of the chaos of information that's out there and how it affects behavior, rather than a specific source or, or genre of, of, of communication. Um, uh, and that, though both, of course, are legitimate questions. Uh, that's, you'll see pretty clearly that I'm interested in this very general uh, question of the public information environment. Um, I don't do a lot myself about individual messages. Uh, my colleagues at Annenberg, there are a number of them who work very carefully on exactly how to shape messages and which ones matter and which ones don't, and I don't do very much about that. I work on larger scale, um, sort of middle scale projects, as you'll see. All right. When I talk about media exposure effects, uh, it's important to recognize that media exposure effects happen in lots of ways. They happen, of course, because people learn things. Uh, they learn that colorectal cancer screening will protect them uh, from uh, getting colon cancer, or at least uh, uh, cure it if they, if they have it now. Um, sometimes media is used to remind people it's time to get another colorectal screening, colonoscopy. Um, sometimes media are providing emotional charges. Uh, that is trying to not so much inform people about something, but provide an emotional overlay to it uh, so that they have positive feelings about it. Um, uh, sometimes media are designed not to inform so much as to frame an issue. So think about uh, colorectal cancer screening as protection of those who you love rather than as a way of saving yourself from colon cancer. Those are very different frames for, uh, for, for messages around that sort of argument, even though both have the same implication. Um, they can be norm uh, providing norm normative information. Everybody's getting colorectal cancer screenings. You should, too. 
Um, they can be agenda setting. This is an important issue. Pay attention to it. Uh, they can be social network stimulating. That is, the way they work may not be, I say, get screened because it will uh, save your health. Maybe because I just talk about colorectal cancer screening and it stimulates a social network which talks about it. And that's actually what influences somebody. So you may not have to be exposed to the content directly. You might be exposed indirectly uh, through, um, uh, through a social network. And that's the, uh, a very important way that media influences people. And if, it's, if that's the way it works, the way you design research is quite different than if it works with direct learning. And finally, uh, not finally, but among, uh, among other roots of effect are institutional activating. That is, it may be that a media campaign about colorectal cancer screening doesn't affect anybody's decision to get screened themselves, but it affects the likelihood that a hospital is providing um, easier access to such screening. Uh, it's providing, or insurance companies decide they really ought to be uh, subsidizing them more than they are. Um, so institutions can be affected by media, and they in turn can affect behavior. So all these are mechanisms of effect. And as you think about trying to look at effects of media, you need to think about all the mechanisms through which uh, they might have influence. So uh, now first trying to give you a sense of the various ways we've tried to assess those effects. So I admit I've spent less, I've become less reliant on, for example, cross-sectional data, observational data gathered at a single point in time. Although we have more and more sophisticated models uh, to account for confounders, uh, I find it difficult with regard to cross-sectional data to make as much sense out of calls of water. So I tended not to use those so much. Um, I also don't tend to do laboratory work largely because of the ecological validity question. Um, that is, I, I don't want to study things in too precious a way, so I tend not to do much laboratory work. Media effects are something that happens in real, in real environments. Uh, so instead, I tend to do time series work. I'll present you a few examples, really, of most of my students' work, um, where we're looking at aggregated effects. I'll talk about that in a moment. And then a second, and here I'll talk about uh, a more substantial study related specifically to cancer-related outcomes, observational lagged effects. Uh, we're really gathering data over time, uh, um, but still observational work. And finally, um, uh, a field experiment done on a large scale uh, to try to maintain some level of ecological validity. Okay, so first the time series studies. What do these look like? Typically, um, you measure some media content stream over time. Um, you measure some behavioral output stream over time. And then try to show that variation in the content stream um, predicts subsequent variation in the output stream. It's not too, um, uh, pretty standard stuff. And that such prediction is independent of other influences. And then you try to make it more complex. <laughs> is complexify a, word, a, a word as a command? I, I always liked it. I'm not sure if it's a word or not. But all right. So here's an example of one study by Joe Stryker. Uh, this is um, uh, first uh, um, the, the, out, the output stream, really the behavioral stream. So what she's looking at is um, over time between 1977 and, um, and, and 2000, uh, what proportion of 12th graders um, were either abstinent in the past 30 days or believe it's, am I getting the right ones here? Um, yeah, that's abstinent 
This is where they tried marijuana. Oh, they believe it's harmful to try marijuana. That's down here. You see that's quite low. And third is where they disapprove of trying marijuana. And you see there's some change over time in all three of those uh, outcomes. And then we have um, a news coverage stream. So in this case, uh, she measure, used LexisNexis, which is an electronic resource uh, to try to locate um, media coverage. So in a complex way, she developed a search term that allowed her to see how much coverage there was of marijuana. Um, uh, we have um, uh, clear criteria for deciding whether you've got a good search term or not, uh, percent of good articles that you're actually found, and percent of articles uh, found which are actually good, what we call them precision. Um, and I won't spend a lot of detail on the, we won't spend more time on those, but then uh, moving towards um, uh, generating daily news coverage counts, as how, how much coverage there was pro-marijuana or pro-marijuana abstinence versus con-marijuana abstinence. And she measured those over time. You see uh, the top line is uh, uh, the number of pro-stories over the same period, uh, per, uh, per, in this case, per year. Those are pro stories, pro abstinence, not pro marijuana, and these are con stories, which you can see are much rarer, although they're beginning to pick up towards the end of this period. And then essentially she relates the two. Um, uh, over time, with a, la a distributed lag regression model, and again, it's a um, the the um, this says. The abstinence the year before is very predictive of abstinence the year afterwards. That is non-use of marijuana. And then you see here's the effect of pro-marijuana in the year before, so lagged use it's con the year before. Um, change in R-square is not very large associated with news coverage, um, with standard errors, betas. Uh, but really simplifying the results, uh, for every 300 extra pro-abstinence stories, you got about 2.4% more marijuana abstinence the next year. For each uh, 50 con stories, you get about 1.6% less abstinence. So this is a very typical sort of study, trying to examine the effects um, using uh, really at the aggregate level of trying to examine how it is that coverage of a particular topic is related to a particular output stream. So there are a whole series of studies that have come out, uh, and as I say, some of them complexify things. So Yitzhak Yanovitsky uh, did a, um, a study of drunk driving coverage uh, and its effects on actual drunk driving behavior. But he argued in a very interesting way that the way this worked, media coverage worked, was not by influencing individual behavior. It was by influencing legislators who introduced new legislation into state legislatures, um, sort of controlling drunk driving, increasing the level of um, uh, um, what would be defined as drunk driving over time. The Joe Stryker study I just showed you, Anka Romantan did a study of the effects of media coverage of airplane accidents on passenger volume. Did people actually get on airplanes or not? Uh, there's a lot of good archival data about that. But she argued it was very much contingent on whether the media, co media covered the airplane accident as a maybe result of conspiracy. Uh, that is, whether there was uncertainty. If that was the case, then people didn't get on airplanes. Uh, they were less likely to get on airplanes after an airplane accident. Uh, but otherwise, it didn't matter. Uh, Jeff Niederdepe, um uh, was looking, actually, at the output was whether people looked for cancer information. 
um, but argued that media coverage of specific cancers led to specific, uh, to more cancer information seeking. Uh, but uh, in particular importance here, his complexification was finding that this was particularly true for people, different, different for people of different socioeconomic status. Uh, uh, Robin Stevens um, focused on media coverage of HIV AIDS, and she, uh, her hypothesis was that uh, African Americans would not be affected by mainstream news coverage because she thought they were they were not being treated very much in that coverage. But the, actually, the results said just the opposite. Uh, that is, they were more effective in terms of likelihood of getting tested uh, over time. So all these studies really have a similar logic to them, and they have strengths. They allow all mechanisms, all those mechanisms of effect I described to be operating, because they're looking at, here's the media coverage of the issue, here's the output stream, let's see how they're related. Doesn't depend on self-reports of exposure. Nobody has to say how much they were exposed, and they're clearly ecologically valid in the sense that they really are population effects but they clearly have weaknesses as well. Uh, um, they don't really describe how the change occurs. They're just an input stream and an output stream, and there isn't a lot which says what goes on between. It doesn't really um, establish the effects of exposure, because all that's being measured here is do people have access to content? That is, what's in the, what's in the media? It doesn't really say people are exposed to it. Uh, they just sort of assume that. It's also possible that some confounders are still operating. Um, it certainly doesn't say, well, how much extra exposure do you need before you get an effect? And of course, the research technology is only useful when you have a, some sort of archive which allows you to aggregate um, uh, these outcome measures over time, as you can always do. All right, so there's some real strengths here, but it's limited. The second research approach, um, the individual lagged effects work takes a fairly standard model. It says what we have in, uh, here is uh, exposure at time one, an outcome at time one, exposure at time two, outcome at time two, and a bunch of confounders. And what we're trying to show is that this red line is, is operating. That is, there's some evidence that if you measure exposure at time one, it will predict an outcome at time two, even after you adjust for prior levels of the outcome and all the confounders you can measure. <coughs> so the particular study I'm going to talk about now in this model is effects of exposure to topic-specific information uh, through team use of non-medical sources on cancer prevention and screening behaviors, about which we've done a fair amount of work. So we're trying to see whether um, people who are more exposed to content associated with a particular prevention behavior are more likely to engage in it, controlling for their likelihood of engaging, uh, uh, engaging in it at baseline. So this seeking and scanning study uh, was a panel study um, with, uh, that we took, undertook in 2005 and 2006. Um, so it had repeated measurement one year apart. It was done by Knowledge Networks um, <coughs> now called GFK, um, uh, but it was a, it's the only random digit dial recruited online panel uh, that's available for, for standard survey research. And at some level, it's US representative. It's designed to be representative of the US population uh, with strengths and weaknesses, which I can talk about. We had about 2,489 people we measured at baseline, 1,800 at follow-up, uh, so there wasn't too much loss. Uh, we were focusing only on 40 to 70 year olds because those are the ones who were eligible for at least some of the cancer screening that we were going to measure. 
We focused on six behaviors, uh, fruit and vegetable consumption, dieting to lose weight, exercise, mammography, prostate-specific antigen test, and colonoscopy. Um, the measures of seeking and scanning, which I'll show you in a moment, were specific to each of those topics. But I want to talk for a moment about this idea of scanning and compare it with other uh, measures of exposure. So scanning is a term that's been used before, but we've um, used it in a fairly uh, focused way to capture what gets learned when you're exposed through routine media exposure. As we all read newspapers, watch television, uh, go, go on the internet, when we're not looking for anything in particular, but that produces exposure to information about particular topics without our being conscious that we're looking for. It. So we're not seeking necessarily. Uh, for, uh, for the information. And that routine media exposure, I want to argue, is most of the exposure that people get to media content about particular topics most of the time. So surely cancer patients are going to be active looking on the internet for information about their cancer. When you talk about um, colorectal cancer screening, dieting to lose weight, fruit and vegetable consumption, that stuff is showing up in the media environment all the time in much higher doses than anybody is getting by seeking and much higher doses than any deliberate public education program might be able to realize. We just don't do it on a large enough scale most of the time. And so I really am interested in how it is this routine media exposure influences behavior. Uh, uh, and the term we're using for that is called scanning. Okay. So it's, understand, it's important to understand how we measure it. Um, so we ask both about seeking information and scanning information. But at some level, we needed to set up people with the idea of what seeking meant before we could ask about scanning. So some people are actively looking for information about, for example, fruits and vegetables, while other people just happen to hear or come across such information. Some people don't come across, inform across information about fruits and vegetables at all. Thinking about the past 12 months, did you actively look for information about fruits and vegetables from doctors, from other people, or from the media? Were you actively looking for information about fruits and vegetables in the past 12 months from any of the following sources? So we tried to differentiate doctor, family, friends, or coworkers, television or radio, newspapers, magazines, the internet, or some other source. So here we're asking people to recall their behavior uh, and really a yes-no behavior. Did you ever look for information about fruits and vegetables? And that then sets up the next set of questions, which are the ones I'm going to focus on. So thinking about the past 12 months, did you hear or come across information about fruits and vegetables from doctors, from other people, or from the media, even when you were not actually looking for it? Again, people get to say yes, no, or don't recall. And then how many times did you hear or come across information about fruits and vegetables from each of the following sources when you're not actually looking for it? So you see the sequence here, first seeking, um, then scanning, first yes, no at all, and then down to source-specific data. And people could um, say not at all, one or two times, three or more times, or they don't recall. All right, I'll come back here a second. We then create a scale, which may, uh, we're now going to focus on the non-doctor related uh, context. So this group, this group, this group, and this group. So you could either get a zero, a one, or a two on each of those. So the scale we created varies from zero to eight based on, on for each of the specific topics. 
So the question is, can you trust this sort of measure? It seems pretty um, global. Can you can you use it? So we have some evidence for its validity. This is published by a uh, paper by Bridget Kelly and, and colleagues. Um, so first of all, scanning is a concept that seems to work across behaviors. People who scan for one thing tend to scan for the others, uh, which is, is, is what you'd expect. The mean correlation is about 0.5. And scanning is different than both seeking and general media exposure. So we also ask you know, the questions about how often they uh, generally use various media sources. And this is correlated with that, as you'd expect it to be, but not, not very highly, substantially less. The mean correlation is about 0.23. It's also quite different. People are able to distinguish it from seeking information. The correlation there is only about 0.23 as well, 0.25. It's also something that people tell us about consistently over time. So this is test, retest over a year. And people who scored more highly at time one were also substantially more likely to score highly at time two correlation of 0.42. And finally, and this test was less consistently confirmed, the way we gathered this data was every week we'd gather 1 50th of our sample. So we have it over an entire year, 1 50th of the, of the 2,400 people um, over time. We also had data from LexisNexis about how often um, newspapers covered in this, um, scan, um, uh, a particular mammograms, colorectal cancer screening. So we did a LexisNexis search and looked over time. Um, and what we found, really, this is work by Jeff Niederdappi, uh, found that newspaper coverage was associated with scanning over time for mammograms and colonoscopy, not for the other behaviors, but really what was entirely external, you, what you'd expect. The more people, the more there was news coverage, the more people said, yeah, I saw something about that in that week. Um, so we did see some consistent relationship with that, which made us feel good. So we have some evidence for the validity of scanning. Then the question is, how does scanning work? What effects does it have? This really comes, harks back to my earlier comments. So there's increased probability of exposure to new relevant information. You learn new stuff by reading, by being exposed to all this content that you didn't know you were going to learn. You get normatively reinforced the more you see things about colonoscopy, about mammograms in news media, in entertainment programming, the more likely you are to believe it's uh, something that everybody else is doing. And also, it might give you timely exposure to cues. You, yeah, you know about colonoscopy, you think it's a good thing, but you weren't thinking about it until you saw some media coverage of that issue. All right, so just to give you a sense of the distribution of these variables, um, <coughs> So the first column there is the mean on the 0 to 8 scale of scanning. And first of all, what you notice is the three prevention behaviors, dieting to lose weight, fruit and vegetable consumption, and exercise, have much higher means than the three uh, screening behaviors, pornography, <coughs> colonoscopy, and PSA. Um, uh, not a big surprise, uh, but what it says is a lot more media coverage of those bottom three topics, prevention topics, than the top three. And mammography, again, it won't surprise you to see there's a lot higher level of uh, people recognizing they're seeing mammography content than, for example, PSA content. These are, uh, mammography would be just women, PSA is just men. Colonoscopy is both. Now, on the right-hand uh, right side, you see what the behavior was at baseline. So about 54% of women said they'd gotten a mammography in the last year. 39% um, had a, uh, were up to date on colonoscopy. A PSA, about 27% of men said they'd gotten PSA in the past year. 
38% of men, of everybody said they were dieting to lose weight. Um, uh, fruit and vegetables, about 3.65 per day. Per day. Exercise, about 2.58 times per week. That's more or less what people were reporting. But now what we want to know is, if we knew how much they scanned at baseline, and we knew what their baseline behavior was, did it predict change in their behavior over time? So again, this basic analytic model, where exposure at time one predicts outcome at time two. Um, but we're also interested in, here's a fairly important issue, we're interested in whether the effects of exposure are moderated by your level of the outcome at time one. So for example, is exposure to media about mammography only effective for women who are already getting mammography? Or is it effective for everyone? So we have an interaction between the baseline behavior and the media exposure variable. So here's a summary of all the results, uh, all the lag results. So first, first line, um, mammography, prior behavior, of course, is highly predictive of subsequent behavior a year later. Uh, women who are getting mammography at time one are going to be getting it at time two with much greater probability. Scanning has no average effect, but it does interact with the behavior in a positive way. So in this case, we have a significant, purple means significant, um, uh, we have a positive effect so that women who are already getting mammography at baseline were more likely to get it again if they were scanning heavily. Colonoscopy, we only looked at people who, uh, because, of course, colonoscopy is too damn complicated <laughs> in terms of when you're eligible for it. And so we only looked at people who didn't have a colonoscopy baseline here. Um, scanning really doesn't predict whether they get a colonoscopy at follow up if they didn't have one at baseline. For a PSA, uh, we have, again, a very large effect. Men who got it at baseline were much more likely to get it later, but scanning didn't seem to matter very much. Dieting to lose weight was completely unrelated. Uh, to scanning. But then we go to fruit and vegetables. Um, and again, there's no average effect, but we do see a positive effect. These are ordinarily squares regressions rather than uh, logistic regressions. So the, we're dealing with beta, uh, B coefficients here. Um, uh, but we see an interaction so that those who are already um, eating more fruit and vegetables were more likely to get eat yet more or, um, if, they, uh, um, uh, if they were heavy scanners. And exercise is the only place where we actually see an overall main effect, so that people who scan were more likely to be exercising more at time two, controlling for exercise at time one, uh, which was, of course, an important influence. OK. Then just to present one of the results graphically, here was the fruit and vegetable result. So the scanning on the x-axis, um, time two fruit and vegetable consumption on the y-axis. Um, and the dashed line are the people who were not already having five a day uh, fruits and vegetables. And you see there's very little effect of scanning. It's pretty flat. Uh, whereas those who are already adherent, there's a positive effect uh, over time. Sorry. All right, so strengths and limitations. So lagged evidence um, addresses causal order in a way that cross-sectional analysis doesn't. Pretty realistic context. These are real people uh, answering surveys. They're nationally representative sample. But it has limitations, too. Um, so it depends on uh, individual differences. I'm no longer be able to see the effects of social network spread or institutional spread. All I can do is here is look at the effects of individual exposure. 
Um, so the, those two mechanisms are underestimated. Depends, of course, on people accurately telling us how much exposure they had. And of course, we still have, it's, it's not an experiment, obviously, we have the risk of unmeasured uh, uh, confounders with time differentiated effects. All right, so next step. All observational studies, you worry about causal claims. So what we wanted to do next was some sort of experimental manipulation. But we needed to <coughs> manipulate routine exposure. That is not exposure people chose. Because if they're choosing it, then it's no longer um, uh, uh, unrelated to, or it risks being related to the outcome period. So how do we do it while maintaining ecological validity and no self-selection for opportunity for exposure? So what we ended up doing was a field experiment. Um, we created an e-health newsletter called the Penn Health Digest, randomized controlled trial, in which we tried to increase access to routine coverage um, specific to a topic. We had four randomly assigned arms. For 11 months, people um, received monthly newsletter, newsletters with 10 articles, um, seven of which were in common across all four arms, but three of which are specific to a topic, either mammograms, colorectal cancer screening, fruit and vegetable consumption, or exercise content. So they could get a maximum dose, essentially, of 33 extra articles about the focus topic over a year. So just to give you a feel for it, it may be a little hard to see back there. This is what the, they would get in their email, and they'd click on it, and they'd end up going to the actual website where the digest had uh, longer articles about each topic. So there were about 15,000 people who agreed to subscribe. They're all 50 to 70-year-olds. We used Survey Sampling International, who have a, basically an opt-in panel. It's the only way you could possibly afford to do the study. Uh, we would send them um, e e email notification that the electronic news newsletter was available. It was on a pen-hosted site, which meant we could measure all their clicking behavior. We did baseline midpoint and final questionnaires. And in the end, we got about 4,500 final respondents um, uh, to, to analyze uh, who answered the questionnaire. And, um, and so typically, it would look like this. So they would have 10 articles there, three of which are specific to their topic. Uh, in this case, it's fruit and vegetable. So is soy toxic? Um, the second one is about skin cancer, not about being shared. Third one is about potential benefits and downsides associated with juices. The um, third one's about cellulite. Uh, fourth one, um, belly fat. And someplace along here, there's going to be another fruit and vegetable one I can't remember. Professional editor uh, worked and developed this with our uh, uh, Penn School of Medicine colleagues supervised everything that was going here. Some of you may know Sandy Schwartz, who was the medical director of the, uh, of the newsletter. So here are the results. On average, they didn't open all the newsletters. This is not going to be a shock to anybody who gets their own newsletters. So they opened, on average, about five of the 11 newsletters, eight of the 77 general articles, four of the 33 treatment articles. So we're talking about, an average, 12 articles out of 110 they could have opened. Not a big surprise. And as you might expect, given that people were basically not exposed to the campaign, there was no average effect. So if we simply compare um, uh, the overall mean, effect, mean, behavior, mean behaviors on any of the four outcomes, comparing the mammogram group to, to the women who were, mammogram women who were not, to the women who were in any of the other three conditions, uh, there was no average effect. But 
I wouldn't be showing you this if there wasn't something, something that comes mm -hmm. after the but. Mm -hmm. For those who looked at the newsletters, which was exactly equal across all four conditions, while there was no significant effects for either mammograms or exercise, there were intriguing effects for fruit and vegetable consumption and colorectal cancer screening. Let me show you what they look like. So here's fruit and vegetables. So here's the number of newsletters they opened. As I said, it could vary from 0 to 11. Here's the fruit and vegetable consumption at the after questionnaire for the group who did not get the fruit and vegetable newsletter. That's the blue line. They said leads flat. In contrast, for those who are in the fruit and vegetable newsletter, it's flat up to about six or seven opens. But after that, you see them sharply going up. And the actual test here is the interaction between number of opens and condition uh, and their joint effects on the outcome. So this just pictures what happened in some detail, but the actual statistical test is, a, is the interaction between newsletter opens and condition. Uh, so we see a positive effect there. But for colorectal cancer screening, the result was just the opposite. That is, in this case, the blue line is still the, the uh, control group. This, this looks different, but it isn't. It's not significantly different. But what we see is, in fact, the more newsletter times they open the newsletter, the more likely they were to be up to date on colorectal cancer screening at the at, at follow-up. But for the people who got the newsletter, no, they were less likely to be up to date. That is, it seemed to undermine the likelihood of getting colorectal cancer screening. By a lot. By a lot. But uh, yes, in terms of the people who went to all 11 newsletters, right? So people did a lot. They're going from 75, 74, so to 64, so 10% down in terms of being up to date. So how can this be? <laughs> After all, so uh, now what you need to understand is these newsletters were not designed to be persuasive. They were designed to capture the media environment, what's out there. They would look, uh, the editor and uh, people who are working with them would look at journals, they would look at public media, and look for stories that looked interesting. And his job was to make them people read them. So he was developing headlines that he sort of saw uh, to, to be intriguing. But his job was not to persuade somebody to get colorectal cancer screening. His job was to try to capture the general media environment, because that's what we wanted to do. We were trying to see what's the effect of ordinary media exposure. We were not trying to see the effects of deliberate uh, controlled media exposure. And so we went back and looked at the stories, and none of them said, don't get it, because obviously they were going through medical, medical supervision. But some of them described that it wasn't the most pleasant thing in the world to get screened, particularly um, the prep. And so what we figure is happening is people, the more they, they read the, the stories, the, the more they said, well, maybe I won't get it right now. Maybe I'll delay it, um, because in fact, it's convincing that it wasn't so pleasant. And that may well be what goes on with a lot of media content. It's not as if people are deliberately saying, oh, CRC is, un is unsafe or not helpful. Just letting people know that maybe they don't want to do it. So the best thing to do is not mention it at all. Just give it to people before telling them anything about it. All right. But so we have this interesting contrast with this experimental research, the attempt to try to uh, capture the sequence. So you, so you get the sequence here. So early on, we do cross-sectional analyses. We try to show that. Um, People's exposure is associated with their behavior. We do show that, although I didn't show you very much many of those results. 
Then we do this lag stuff to try to capture whether uh, exposure at time one predicts change in behavior at time two, to try to solve this problem of causal order while still controlling for 45 confounders at the same time. <coughs> and then finally, we move to this uh, field experiment to try to uh, answer the same question, essentially, does routine media exposure really matter? Now, there are strengths here, but there are also weaknesses. So we, I think we can make a strong causal claim. And it's moderately ecologically realistic in the sense that people do get e-health newsletters. Um, uh, <laughs> but it's not quite clear that people who agree to subscribe to an e-health newsletter are representative of the entire population. Um, nor is the context quite realistic. You're getting this e-health newsletter, but none of your neighbors are. There's no one else to talk about it with. You can talk about it, but they're not getting the same newsletter. So in contrast, if you're all getting uh, um, a local newspaper, are there any le local newspapers left in Hanover? <laughs> the only news, all right. Um, um, the, if, the, uh, if a lot of people are getting that, then they can talk about it with their neighbors. Well, you can't do it in this study, because you know, it was a national sample. People randomly got, got this around the country. Um, so it has really so we've lost some of the elements of natural media environment. The idea that there are multiple sources covering the same thing, that you're discussing it with others who are exposed. Still, what we've managed to do here as best we could is, is try to increase routine media exposure to these topics without people ever choosing um, to, uh, to be exposed um, in, in a way different across the arms. All right. So just very briefly, um, our next project uh, that Jim mentioned um, of funded by the Federal, Federal Drug Administration, is going back to that time series method that I talked about before. Uh, and our question is, does discussion of tobacco, both global attention, paying attention to tobacco in a broad sense, and then medium level themes, things like um, uh, nanny state, you know, which is a common theme for, for pro-tobacco discussions. That is the idea that, that, um, uh, that uh, the government is, is trying to control us um, or there's a safe cigarette on the horizon, so we can we don't have to stop smoking now because in fact there's going to be safe. Those are what I call middle-level themes, um, and then specific issues like e-cigarettes, um, where which are more focused. But there's discussion of tobacco in all those ways, in both traditional and newer media. We're working very hard in trying to figure out how to code newer media, um, predict youth and young adult both recalls of those discussions. Do they actually remember uh, seeing that stuff? Um, what about relevant personal and policy beliefs? Um, and then finally, about tobacco use as well. So what we've got basically is intensive computer-based content analysis, working with colleagues at the University of Illinois, uh, Chicago, uh, Sherry Emery and her group. Um, we'll basically do that over a 36-month period, code all this content, at least code what we can, see what kids, uh, what's available to kids and to young adults over a 36-month period. <clears throat> then we'll get fresh monthly sample, representative samples of both youth and young adults. Uh, through phone interviews, our total sample would be about 10,800. And then we'll resurvey about half of those people uh, about six months after their first interview. So we have some possibility for doing lagging analysis as well. And then try to see whether we see any relationship between the media stream and the, and the, and the outcome stream. So in some... I think there's substantial, credible evidence for effects of, of routine media exposure that may not have been so available before. Um, I think the effect represents a very messy process. 
contingent on both institutional social contacts, and we haven't completely uh, examined those. Um, I think it's a mistake to try to purify the process, to examine it really closely, um, rather than studying it in as natural, naturalistic a way as we can, which is what we spend a lot of energy trying to do. Um, You know, I'm not sure what position, people take different positions on this subject, but certainly um, I think it's crucial for us to start with a model of effect, how we think a process occurs, and then try to develop methods that allow us to understand that process, rather than starting with a method like a randomized control trial um, and not worrying so much about whether it's answering the question of interest. And in the area of communication research, I think there's a history, unfortunately, of, of um, uh, letting the method define the question rather than vice versa. Uh, that may not be an issue for many of the others of you. And lots more to do, obviously, about mediators, moderators, and showing effects in an incredible way. So I'm done. So other questions or comments? Yes? In terms of the stages of behavior change, model and trying to determine sort of when a person moves from sort of scanning to seeking. Have you identified, is it at pre-contemplative, contemplative, contemplative um, action? Um, in a word, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have dealt a lot with trying to look at the relationship between scanning and seeking. To what extent one predicts the other. Um, uh, you know, the, the people who scan then more likely to seek average. There's a long, there's a high correlation between the two things, unsurprisingly. But we haven't dealt much with the issue of the sort of mental state of someone, that is their stage of change, right. one, um, in terms of when each one happens. It's certainly true that for cancer patients, we have a study that I didn't talk about here at all, um, that Teresa Fraser was sitting back there was involved with, who works here now. Um, uh, but uh, the, the um, we did a study with 2,000 cancer patients state of Pennsylvania um, and followed them for really four years for similar sorts of questions as the ones I've been describing for the general population. Uh, and there we see much more seeking, unsurprisingly, not, not a shock to anybody who works with cancer patients. There's very aggressive seeking behavior, some internet use, but also from lots of other sources. In contrast to this population, which isn't diagnosed, um, so presumably at a much earlier stage of change, they're much more likely to be doing a lot of uh, scanning. So when I'm trying to reach a pre-contemplative audience, I'm usually trying to look for some kind of breakthrough connection to try to create like an aha type moment. But what I'm taking away is that, you know, I can actually potentially reach a pre-contemplative, um, you know, at-risk population by trying to actually, you know, insert media from a scanning perspective. <laughs> That, Insert. Well, I'm trying to get messaging, you know, trying to, to actually just try and increasing messaging in general media can conceivably reach a pre-contemplative audience. I agree if you if you can afford enough uh, messaging to do that. So the historical problem, is, as you know, is if you don't have money to buy media time, um, it's very difficult to get much media exposure to your message. So clearly. That's a scanning example, and certainly this data is consistent. If you get people to scan and get people to notice stuff, then they're more likely to engage in the behaviors at subsequent time. I think that's clearly true. The problem is getting, in a controlled way, people exposed to your messages. But, you know, I, I, I've written this before, but the single biggest problem with most media campaigns is that no one ever sees them. 
because you don't, so the drug campaign, which I worked in, in that case, they were better off not seeing it, but, but uh, <laughs> you know, there they were putting $100 million a year or more, $100 million, $200 million a year or more into buying media time. The Truth Campaign, which was an anti-tobacco campaign, very well known, they were spending that same amount of money to buy media time. The FDA is about to go to the field with a new youth anti-smoking campaign. It's probably going to spend similar amounts of money. If you want to get to an audience on a large scale, then you got to be able to spend the money to get that to happen, or you need natural coverage. Yeah. Um, if I read the, the colorectal uh, comparisons that you have between the control and the non-control group, so is the greatest proportion of increase on both seemed to be at the very beginning when there were three or four opening messages. Is it potential that the exposure, not just the fact that there is that, that, that the results and things came up. You look at not the next one. Sorry. So, so with the comparison group and with the CRC group, except although it, it dripped off, dropped off, the greatest blocker proportionate increase looked like in the very beginning. It seems like maybe just the fact that there's exposure to the article. I don't know. Is there a disproportionate impact, or is that something different? So, so really, the analysis you got to remember those. In some sense, you can look at the interaction of opens with condition. But the actual, if you look at each of these lines separately, what you're showing you is people who's, who open more newsletters, in the case of the blue group, are more likely to, get, to be up to date. That's an observational result. That's not a causal result. The only place to look at the causal result is the comparison of the two lines. Okay? Um, I can't really say how much a dose, what the dose effect was here. It's, in fact, what I want to argue is there was no dose effect until then, right? Because essentially the two groups are roughly comparable. It looks like they're not, but that I, uh, we've tested it and it's not different. So essentially up to here, there's no difference. So it's really only out here where both groups are opening the newsletters because these people are opening their newsletters. It's just not a colorectal cancer newsletter. This group is opening the colorectal cancer newsletter. In some sense, you would expect them, to, if they hadn't gotten this newsletter, to be going off on the same line. Because that reflects people who open newsletters are probably more likely to get to get uh, uh, screened. Because that's who they are. Right? So you expect the positive association. You don't see it here. So, OK? When you talk about media, Scanning. Are you only speaking about ad campaign no. media? You're talking about PR and third-party endorsement and articles. And, and talking to your friends and any any public information that's not medical. We distinguish medical um, scanning that or seeking from these other classes. Because the cost of a PR campaign is way different from the cost of buying time. Right. If you if you have a method for diffusing a message. Um, and controlling its content. Because the problem with PR campaigns is you can <laughs> your ability to control what actually gets heard by the audience is often not precise. It's not precise. Um, so you got to make news. you got to get people. And so they end up talking about the celebrity who's smoking or not smoking or um, who's having an affair rather than the topic you wanted to talk about. Well, the whole scanning concept, though, seems to be very varied. I mean, uh, since all of that is you can't control it, that would be no different. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm trying to understand the effects of routine media exposure. I'm not trying to understand what would happen if we could do this. I'm really trying to understand what is there evidence? How do you study what the effects of routine exposure is? Um, this looks more like we're trying to do something deliberate, but we weren't trying to be persuasive. 
Remember, we were just trying to capture what was in the media environment. Yes. To what extent, I don't know if you looked at this, but I'm wondering to what extent did the prevalence of scanning, like exposure to all these different topics, did it vary by the use of different types of media? So were internet users more likely to report um, exposure to fruit and vegetable or mammography information through scanning versus high TV users? So the way we analyzed the data, we, we, we mushed them together. We didn't mm. separate them. Separate okay. them. But this, so this scale is a sum, sum across all those sources. And they're, they're, not, and they're fairly correlated. Okay. The, the reason why I'm asking is I'm kind of working on this whole issue of um, tailored kind of advertising and announcements. So, you know, we're doing a study on preschoolers and suddenly like all my Facebook, everything's filled with like preschool stuff. I don't have preschoolers. So, but it, it's really affected, like what I'm looking at on the internet has really affected my incidental exposure. And so you think like, Scanning through the internet is going to be different because it's tailored to scanning through TV or magazines. Right. So, I mean, if they're looking specifically for information about some topic like mm -hmm. obesity or, or yeah. nutrition, then we call that seeking rather than scanning. Um, but, but, it, but it influences the scanning, right? Because sure. now it's smart. And, and so it kind of feeds these incidental. Right. Announcements based on what you sought. Right. There are other studies which I obviously I'm trying mm -hmm. to describe, which try to look at the interaction between seeking and scanning and the uh -huh. joint effects so of that. Might, yeah. But but you're asking a somewhat different question, and uh, we have certainly looked at uh, you know within particular media, but I can't remember results, and we certainly haven't published them mm -hmm. um, in terms of differential effects. And my assumption is. Talking about 10 years worth of research, so we would publish them, but they were interesting. Mm. <laughs> and so they probably weren't that interesting, but I can't remember yet. Yep. In some ways, uh, social media is a more powerful um, behavioral, um, can influence behavior in a more powerful way. Um, what are your thoughts on social media and um, how might we integrate into social media to um, cause behavioral change? Um, so, Certainly, that's a, a common argument. Social media has changed everything. This data is earlier, of course, of course. 2005, 2006, dealing with 40 to 70 year olds and 50, 50 to 70 year olds. So, social media is probably less relevant for them in any case. And certainly, at the time, the study was done. For the younger population. Right. So, clearly, for the tobacco study I described at the very end, that's what we're spending all our energy on, is trying to figure out how to read that environment. Um, I've been looking. Trying to respond to this. So there's no one who thinks about this problem who isn't thinking about how do I work on social media? How do I think about it? Social media, of course, is not mass media. In this, in, particularly in the sense that no message gets to, or very few messages get to a mass. You know, a few things go viral and everybody sees them, but most things don't. Um, and so social media doesn't look, it's more like a telephone in that sense than it is like um, mass media. And so trying to think about how it influences behavior. There are attempts to use Facebook or use other sources um, in, a, in a deliberate way to try to um, have some outcome effects. And the, I've been looking a little bit at that literature lately. It doesn't look all that promising, to be honest, um, to really try to. Pop-up ads within Facebook. 
There are various efforts to try to create Facebook single sites, but I, I, I don't want to argue I've done a comprehensive look at that. So um, the problem with pop-up ads is how many people are going to actually see them. It's not that they might not be effective if people saw them, but do you have the money to actually create pop-up ads for a general population so they'll see lots of them and be effective? That's the tricky part with social media. It doesn't. It's a lot cheaper to buy advertising on television um, in the long run. In terms of assuring yourself of exposure, a repeated exposure, it may be harder to do it through social media. Um, even though it seems easier and cheaper at first, when you think about the denominator of the entire population, it gets harder and harder. I guess kind of a complex topic to, to go into. In your title, you used the phrase uh, ordinary media content. What, what is the difference between extraordinary and ordinary? Is it frequency, or is it how influential it is? Or? It's when you're not deliberately, it's really, I'm sure what I'm trying to do is distinguish between either deliberate attempts to pers at persuasion or what or seeking seeking information. But rather, I'm reading my newspaper, I'm watching the television news, and I ex I'm exposed to this through my ordinary media use. But really, the distinction is, um, it's what I ordinarily do, and it means I get some messages, information about a particular topic um, because I'm doing using media in an ordinary way, as opposed to using it in a special way. I'm not going on the internet to find out about obesity. It's just, I'm on the internet, and oh, all of a sudden something shows up there that I wasn't looking for. It's really that routine, ordinary use of media we're interested in. That's what most of us do. Most of us don't search for information about fruits and vegetables. Just shows up. And what I'm interested similar to the kinds of things that we try to put out through the answer community, those newsletters that we write that, that, that kind of describe, you know, e-cigarettes or and it seems to me the take-home point about about this is that that those kinds of efforts probably don't have a lot of impact because people are just scanning and and you're only creating like one newsletter on a topic rather than, you know, kind of really increasing the dose of a scanning. Right. And then beyond that, it seems like you have to be really careful about the message that you deliver because, because you could easily deliver a message that would have the opposite effect of what you intend with your, with your newsletter. Michael, I have a question. Why do you, why do you think you had a different observational finding on exercise than you did with the experimental finding? Because, I mean, what you were trying to do with the experiment was experimentally yes. do the same thing that happened to people that were doing more scanning. Um, there was actually a, tre a trend in favor in the, uh, in the um, experimental study in favor of exercise as well. It just wasn't significant, so I wasn't going to claim it, uh, as I shouldn't. But it was, uh, the direction was certainly consistent with the uh, data from the observational study. But we haven't, so I, I would say, I don't know, <laughs> you know, why our results are not completely consistent across the two studies. There are various places where they're not consistent. Uh, we found results in one and not the other. Thinking about this idea of the mass media, do you have to adjust for sources that um, may tailor content? So if it's Google News versus the New York Times versus The Economist and 
the type of content that may be fed into those different sources? Um, so we're asking people to tell us what they've seen. Um, that, so which study are you talking about? The last study, the tobacco oh, study? I just, I'm just thinking about people's questions in terms of this Facebook problem and the social media and then you, and this idea of that, you know, the cookies get planted in the computer so suddenly maybe you're being exposed to more of a certain type of thing. And so more generally, I, I was thinking, well, even we had that problem even before social media, even before the cookies, with these different news sources, right? With sure. like, if you just look at newspapers, newsprint, and what appears in the different papers. I'm not sure this is going to be a good answer, but it's, <laughs> but it, but it's the question I want to answer as well. I'm not sure answering the question. Um, <laughs> The, uh, when we measure, and going back to the time series studies now, in particular, you know, those earlier ones about marijuana use, marijuana coverage, what we're thinking, what we're arguing is, what we're assessing is the public communication environment. We're not really caring so much about this article on this day. It really is about what's the theme that's out there now. We're assuming it's across media. Insofar as all the media are telling us different stories, we're dead. You know, we really can't do a very good job. It only works because we make the assumption that somehow there's a public media environment where stories are shared, attention is shared across sources. So it's quite true that different sources will do different things, but on average, the average person's exposure ought to be in common. And that's really our assumption, as opposed to trying to understand the effects of this exposure to this app or this this piece of content. It's really a this exposure to the public communication environment, which we're assuming varies over time. So I want us all to give Bob a hand. Thank you for. Uh...